If you're looking for a clean, sober, professional, academic, well-researched, historically accurate, generally accurate, serious podcast on Southern folklore, ghosts, bizarre events, and unique people, this podcast is not for you. However, if you've decided you can live with that, then join us for The Strange South. Are delicious. This is like cranberry Saint Germain cocktails, and it sounds amazing. Is sounds as hoity-toity as it tastes. It's yes, really good. It is a little hoity-toity because I bought elderflower liqueur for like one drink, and it's big. And so I've been looking up all these cocktails that have Saint Germain elderflower liqueur in them. Mm. And this is very holiday. It is very. It's beautiful. It's holiday. It cranberry e it's cran and i love cranberry it's green and red mm-hmm. and it's like tart and sweet and yeah it is not bad it has like a nice little punch and i'm really having a hard time not just guzzling it mm-hmm. we may be a bit low-key today yes we are recovering from thanksgiving yeah patrice had a much bigger grander thanksgiving experience <sighs> Well, I did like all, like I said, all of my grandmother's recipes, and I mean, it was like six casseroles, a date nut cake, a turkey, a ham. It it was it was a lot that got done within the span of two days and like fifteen Walmart trips. (laughs) Which the the Walmart trips alone alone are enough to drive a person crazy. Absolutely, but it was a success. Everything turned out. Although I do think my date nut cake, I put too many. Too much nuts. It was too nutty. Mm. But by that time, I just didn't fucking care. <laughs> so it, it ate. It and, ate. Oh, <laughs> yeah, it ate. I also made um, homemade ambrosia mm. and found out and did my own, like, coconut, grated my own coconut, like, cracked it open. What the hell? I mean, that's what my grandmother did. So I was like, I was sticking to what the effort Damn, she girl. went through. And let me just tell you coconuts can go bad mm. so i opened up the it didn't look bad and i grated and it grated beautifully and the only problem was it smelled like chemicals what? and it tasted like chemicals and so i was like google and i googled it and you know coconuts can go bad and or they can absorb uh pesticides <gasps> or whatnot so I immediately threw that out and was very disheartened because oh. I attacked that coconut with a sledgehammer. And it was like really cathartic. <laughs> <laughs> so I wasn't too mad oh at it, but I cracked some <laughs> coconuts. <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> that uh, makes me want to cry for you. I mean, <laughs> oh no. And it, you know, cracking the coconut wasn't really the worst thing. The worst thing was trying to get the husk from the white meat part. Mm-hmm. And you have to just shave it. So it's just a lot of shaving with a knife to kind of cut that stuff up. And I went through all that trouble because I did all of that first mm-hmm. before grading it. So I, like I went through all the pain so that I could just like, Ugh. but I should have known because they like, they say that when you crack open a coconut, it should smell wonderful. Mm-hmm. And it did not smell wonderful. 
Hmm. That should have been like my first, like, nope, throw away kind of deal. But wow. it looked fine. It was all white and, you know, it wasn't like weird looking or anything like that, but it just was bad. This is your public service announcement for the day. Absolutely. Like out for bad coconuts. Yes. And actually my story today, I will be giving a couple of public service announcements. So it's kind of a good oh, lead in there. Okay. Um, let's see. Is there anything else I want to talk about? Mm-mm-mm. Been playing Witcher 3, so I don't know if there's any gamers out there. Oh, you know there are. You know there are <laughs> female Witcher fans, uh, which has been a nice diversion. My husband actually bought it uh, on sale. Like It's been out for like four years, and so uh, you can get it for like $15, and especially now with like uh, all the Black Friday deals mm-hmm. and whatnot, it's very cheap. And so he bought it, thinking that he would like play it, or you know, it looked like something that I would like to play. And of course, he was right. And now I'm like obsessed with it. I've been playing it a lot. And uh, at the end of December, Netflix is having Witcher doing a Witcher doc, not a documentary, but a Witcher show. They oh. they develop a Witcher show based off of the comic books, which the game was based off of, and whatnot. Cool. So that's been like a huge part of my, that's kind of my sanity. Like I need to get away, just kind of lock myself in the house and play that for a little while. Just slaying all kinds of uh, just ghouls and werewolves and beasts and stuff. <laughs> just totally up my alley. Just picture piece, people's faces on them and just be like, yes, these are my students. <laughs> uh, also, I know I read Netflix is doing a documentary on like the most haunted places. I saw that. Did you say that? Yeah, I think you, somebody put it on the fan page too. Mm, yeah, I, I think like, that's where oh. I saw it. Man, the fan page has been rocking. Mm-hmm. So if you're not like, have not joined our private, you have to like answer these questions three to get into the fan club. Um, it's pretty active. A lot of good. If you love just folklore, uh, Funny Woo-woo, shit. Funny shit. Um, if you need to know how to send a chocolate dick to someone anonymously. <laughs> All kinds of good stuff. Then you can find us, uh, fans of the strange south, strange <laughs> No, not dot com. I want to put dot com on the end of everything. On Facebook. On Facebook. Thank you. Patrice is having a headache today, too. I, so she's yes. in struggle. She's in struggle right now. I'm struggling. I'm, tr- I'm trying to. I'm trying. It's, I'm going to do it. You're doing a good I'm gonna, job. I'm going to do it. I'm impressed. We are doing it. <laughs> like, I'm going to cry. We're going to make it. We are talking. So, December 13th, we are having our one year anniversary. Mm-hmm. And we've got two, two more. Two shows away. Two shows away. And then we're going to take a little bit of a hiatus. But I still have a bit of a backlog from our Halloween show of stuff that I can put up every week. So Mm. um, not to give myself any extra work, but I may prep those if I find time. Because we've got some doozies like we've been building that up and then have not been releasing them to you. So that may come into play or either like whole stories. Is that what we're talking about? Well, just talking about like uh, listener lore Mm -hmm. um, that we've collected. So we've got several that's kind of been sitting on the shelf that we can throw together. Or either I'm just going to say fuck it for the next two or three weeks and just 
I think you deserve a fuck it couple weeks. Deal with, you know, trying to end the school year and holidays. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think you need to do a fuck it couple weeks. Yeah. Because this is not stuff that I can pick up for you because I don't know how to do the sound shit. <laughs> You've got all that stuff. Right. And, you know, maybe that'll come out for the new year once we get started. Um, yeah. So. I got nothing. All, you know, when, as soon as we ended last uh, episode, I thought, oh, fuck, I should have said this. And I should have said that. And even Courtney's chalkboard. I mean, I've got all the things I need to write shit down. I just I have to do it. <laughs> it's like I have to just. I'm 40. Fuck, how old am I? I'm 46 years old. <laughs> 46 or 47 I can't remember <laughs> I'm that that many years old and you would think by now I would be able to hack my own brain and know when I'm just fucking I'm never gonna write shit down I'm never gonna remember it and so I have to be more proactive I think you're doing fine thank you got the best friends tell you what okay let's see Anything else I want to talk about? No. I don't think so. Nothing. T-shirts on the website. Oh, if you're interested in mm. buying things like that, you right. couldn't get at shows, or you know, right. If you never make it to shows and you're interested in our T-shirts or any of that shit, it's up on the website now. Patrice set everything up so that it can be, you know, purchased online. Yeah, and we'll ship them. We've already sold a couple of T-shirts, and we have limited supply, and, and like it's less than ten. It's less than. 30 per style mm-hmm. um and the originals i think we may have like one extra yeah. small left so we don't have any more of the originals maybe with the start of the new year that's something that we'll get into so if you are wanting to purchase for yourself or for a loved one a christmas gift of a strange south t-shirt with the skull and crow or either the cicada mm-hmm. uh go to our website thestrangesouth.com and i believe it's under merch and t-shirts um, i'll try to make it easier to find and um yeah and by purchasing you help us out you help us pay for hosting space and we're trying to get courtney a microphone and equipment and travel and courtney a microphone and all the good things and we haven't heard back from dragon con yet but we'll need a little bit of a financial backup if we're gonna end up at dragon con oh my god i can't even like i don't even know what that's gonna cost and we need to like go ahead and we'll have to talk about that yeah of course we don't want to do that if we're not gonna like be there or maybe we will be there even if we don't do a show. I, I guess know. we could. I, we we could. were joking. Courtney and I were joking about going to Dragon Con because we talked about it every year because Randy, my husband, is always at Dragon Con. Mm-hmm. My friends do costume design and they judge the costume competitions and they do workshops at Dragon Con every year. It sounds like so much fun. And I think so, it'd be fun even, yeah, even if we don't do, if we're not working. I'm, you know, I'm one of those 50-50 on them because I think... I think it would be super fun, but half of me thinks about the number of people that are there and like every single muscle in my body just goes like, that's why I think we need to go if they haven't, because I know that like my friends that do go as soon as it's over, they already booked their rooms Mm -hmm. for the next year. Yeah. So I'm like, if you can get a room at the place, I think it'd be a game changer so that, like, when you, you do get tired, do you don't and, have to, like, park yeah. and find a way and then plan when you're going to be there. So I think that's definitely. But then, yeah, like you said, it's moolah. Mm-hmm. This big moolah. All right. All right. 
So, you know, it's like we both kind of have themes that we stay with, you know, or that we've kind of leaned towards, like, you know, things that we like to talk about, like we like to research about. And I've kind of had this in my back pocket for a while because, you know, it's just part of the list and I hadn't felt like doing it and probably should have done it during the summer, but it's, it's okay. But, you know, man-made things, things that happen around lakes mm. have kind of always been very of interest to me. And um, I didn't, you know, I grew up not on the lakes so much. I didn't like visit lakes as much as I, I would like to, but we did have several lakes and rivers uh, where I grew up. And my mom grew up on the river. So I grew up basically, you know, hearing her panic, like, Patrice, if you ever go on a river and you're swimming and the current pulls you under, so here's the PSA, right? <laughs> and the current pulls you under. She's like, rivers are not clear and you cannot tell which way is up or down if you're underwater and in a current. Mm -hmm. And she's like, and people have been known to drown because they think they're uh, swimming towards the top and they actually hit the bottom of the river. She's So she's like, so when you're in a river and you're under, she's like, first of all, don't panic. Second of all, she's like, blow bubbles out and whichever way the bubbles go up, that's the way that you swim up mm -hmm. towards because they're going to go up to the surface. So, she, you know, she's all the time telling me stuff because they would every weekend they'd go out to like a sandbar on a river and like picnic and swim in the river and ski and stuff like that. And um, so I, first of all, don't like fucking swimming in things where I can't see my feet. That's the way my husband did. He's I like, mean, it's gross in here. I don't want to touch any slimy shit. Mm -hmm. I'm going to freak out if something like brushes up against me. I think of just, I just, I just don't like it. And so, I mean, I've been skiing. I've been in the river. I have anxiety attacks, like, when I'm skiing on the river and I'm just sitting there waiting for the boat to go, thinking, would you just fucking get me on top of this water? Um, so, of course, you know, I am in awe of rivers and streams and lakes, and I love them so much. Uh, not necessarily being in them, but I like being around them and grew up around them. So... I was, you know, researching this topic that I'm talking about. And uh, there was this poet that was born in Macon, Georgia. And his name is Sidley Lanier. <gasps> I know what it is. And so one of his most popular songs. I can't fucking read that. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, is the song of the Chattahoochee. And so the Song of the Chattahoochee, this poem, and, and Lanier, you know, he was born 1877, like I said, Macon, Georgia. He was an author, a poet, uh, a professor, a musician. He was also a fucking lawyer. He, like, he did it all. And he was also, like, on the stamp, uh, like, on the stamp, U.S. stamp back in, like, the 70s and oh, whatnot. Wow. And there's so many fucking things named after him. Like, he was really, like... I have never heard of them. I'm sorry. <laughs> but, um, but you know, all these things that were named after him. But the Song of the Chattahoochee, the first little, I guess, stanza or whatever. Again, I don't know poems. Sorry. Uh, it was like, out of the hills of um, Harbershown, down the valley of Hall, I hurry, 
amain to reach the plain, run the rapid and leap the fall, split the rock and together again accept my bed, or narrow or wide and flee from folly on every side with lover's pain to attain the plain, far from the hills of Habersham, far from the valleys of Hall. And so it's like, you know, this poem that he's written about the Chattahoochee, um, where he's basically personifying the Chattahoochee as like it was a person. And the poem is basically the river talking about what it does. And so this is very famous song about this river. And the Chattahoochee River, if you don't know, um, it forms the southern half or it forms at the southern half of Alabama and Georgia border, as well as the portion of Florida. So it runs like right there on the border between Alabama and Georgia, and it flows down into the Gulf. And it also flows up into north Georgia. And back in the mid-1900s, they ended up building a dam there. And one of the main purposes of this dam was for flood control um, of the Chattahoochee River downstream and also to provide water um, and to protect Atlanta from flooding. Mm -hmm. So it's like multi-purpose dam that they started to build. So what happened when they built this dam, of course, it flooded this whole area that I'm fixing to talk about. And it formed Lake Lanier. Lake Lanier! And Lake Lanier today is popular with boaters, um, jet skiers. It's like a really popular summer holiday place. It says like over 10 million people visit the lake annually. And um, you know they have water parks. They have rowing and sprinting, canoeing events. In 1996, Summer Olympics were held there on the lake. Really? Uh, yeah. Oh, my God. I didn't know that. I worked there. I, oh. I worked just in coming Georgia, just out, just off of Lake Lanier. So, wow. yeah. So you I probably... like passed it on my drive to work every day. That is so cool. Mm. They also have like the Dragon Boat World Championship yeah. there. Dragon Boat. Dragon Boat. And, you know, just all of this really cool shit is because it's the biggest lake in Georgia. It's huge. So... The history behind this lake is that after World War II, um, the United States Army Corps of Engineers was charged with this task to like create a dam to provide all these things, uh, you know, stop the flooding, control the flooding, set up um, hydroelectric power, and also kind of the all the recreation stuff was kind of a side note. It mm-hmm. wasn't the most important thing. It's not why that it was built, but it became like this huge industry. Uh, so as soon as like this idea came about, all kinds of disagreements started over every aspect of the dam. Imagine. Imagine. In Atlanta, there oh are political God. disagreements about how things should be done. And so it's like how it should be used. You know, was it mainly designed to provide power or water or recreation? Where was the dam to be located? Um, even the name was under, was like in flux until way after they started construction and they decided to name the lake Lake Lanier. And again, like many start dates, like they had all these start dates that never came about. But the dam actually began, um, you know, was constructed uh I don't have the date right off, but we'll get to that. Anyway, so there's like many dates, like when it would start, when they would first flood it and and whatnot. But what they have to do when you do something like this, you have to begin purchasing land. 
So the first purchase that was made like in 1948 was Shadsburn's Ferry, which um, was this guy, Henry Shadsburn, who, and he was already like 81 years old. Mm -hmm. And he owned um, like a hundred acre farm there. uh, And it was their first purchase. And they paid him for that hundred acre farm $4,100. So they were basically paying people about $50 an acre back then and i was like yeah i got really incensed when i read that and i was like what the fuck but then you have to remember because i always tell my mom when she starts like complaining about things being overpriced it's not the 1950s anymore and Mm -hmm. things are drastically different as far as money so Mm -hmm. i looked up how much money 50 dollars were $50 back in 1949 or 1948 was $520 in Mm. our day's spending. So he actually got almost a million dollars in today's time at 81 years old for his farm. So that didn't piss me off as much. Mm -hmm. Um, Although still. Whether it's fair or not. Feather or nair. Yeah, but it's. At least it's not like a total rip. Like. Right. Not as, not as bad as it could have been. Um. And so, you know, there's a lot of area that needed to um, be bought for this reservoir area. So they ended up, like, buying all these homes. uh, Like, they had bought a toll gate road, a number of other ferries that crossed the river. There was a number of uh, covered bridges that were lost. So they're talking about all this history that was lost um, Uh that they ended up build uh tearing down so that they could have this uh reservoir reservoir see that's what's you know it's like covered bridges are such a thing i know it's like there are there are like covered bridge trails in georgia where you can drive through all the covered bridges right and i mean i think they're cool i mean they're they're pretty and everything but i'm like what is so special about that well you know what (laughs) well this is a thing that i started thinking about too i was like what is the purpose of a covered bridge i wonder that too so you're only covered on the bridge right (laughs) it's not like protection really so yeah so i'm like what what are we protecting from so did you find an answer to this question no because i didn't look it up So that will be one of the things that I need to write down right oh, wait, wait. now. I'm writing it down. To look up so that we can talk about before next week's show. What is the purpose of, of a covered, covered bridge? bridge? <laughs> Other than maybe to give shelter if it starts raining, if you were on the trail. But you're going to be blocking the road. Because well, I was thinking maybe like with horses and stuff, oh, like yeah, back, I guess back in true. the olden times. But they're still not wide. They're like usually only one lane wide, you know, aren't they? Covered bridges yeah, generally. Generally, yeah. So if you're gonna like hang out there in the rain, nobody else can go by. Yeah, this yeah it makes you a dick, right? <laughs> so. Yeah, I, I don't know. That's, Sorry, that's a good so, question. So no. they broke down a bunch of covered bridges. So yeah, they broke down um, all the wooden structures of all these properties that they bought. Um, were torn down. Uh, however, like the concrete and brick, brick structures were left. Uh, there, they had graves. They had like twenty grave sites <sighs> that needed to be uh, relocated, and most of them were like small family graveyards, uh, which was common like in the northeast uh, Georgia hills where mm-hmm. this is located. So it's not you know. Some of the graves obviously were not either found or the bones couldn't be relocated or they didn't have them. I don't know. So 20 that we know of, um, as far as cemeteries go, 
it's estimated that 250 to 700 families were um, like relocated. Mm. And of course, there were several who refused to sell and they had their land seized and were forcibly removed. So, you know, if the government wants your land, mm. the government's going to get your land. And that's just the way of the world. Eminent domain. Right. And whole towns like Oscarville, Georgia, which interestingly enough has its own history that I may talk about a little bit later on. But it was basically abandoned. And it's, I think, I don't know if it's the only town that was submerged, but it is, you know, the one that I did find. Um, like the full town. The full just, town. Just flooded. Right. So more than 50,000 acres of prime farm and bottom land was bought from individuals and private companies. The Buford Dam finally began on March 1st, 1950. It took six years and $45 million to complete. And by 1956, uh, you know, they started to fill it. And it took three to five years to reach its full capacity. Of, oh, my God. Uh, what it says of 1,071 feet above sea level. So the depth of Lake Lanier at the Buford Dam is 211 feet, which is taller than the Statue of Liberty. No way. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of, this is kind of reminiscent too of uh, the Lake Norman in North Carolina. Normie. Yeah. Lake Normie, the monster that, you know, I did previously, that dam was built almost exactly during the same time as this reservoir and dam was built. Um, but that one had like a, a, was it a nuclear plant? It had the nuclear plant. And this one does This This one does not. This yeah. one is just the hydro, whatever that it is. Hydroelectric power right. station. Um, Sam. Right. So really. since like the 50s, people and, and it's like the all and I'm sure there was like a lot of just bad blood of like people having to be relocated. Yeah. And especially if they didn't want to sell and they were like, oh, nope, sorry. Right. And it happened like they started buying in 48 and then they started the process of the dam in 50. Mm. So just a few years. It's not like they gave them 10 years to figure out, you know, what to do. It was like a year or two mm -hmm. and, and you needed to be out. So since then, um, strange things have been happening. It's kind of built up a name for itself. A large number of inexplicable deaths and unsolved murders have happened at Lake Lanier. It's like the deadliest lake in Georgia. It is the deadliest. It's known as the deadliest lake in Georgia. It says an um, estimated number of deaths that are associated with Lake Lanier is at 675 since 1956. Wow. Now, I don't know. I got this source. I listened. There's a really good podcast called um, Southern Gothic. Oh, yeah. I've listened to them. And um, the guy, let me find his. Hold on. I'm scared I'm going to lose my place. That's all right. Da, da, da. Because I want to like shout out to this dude. So it is Brandon. Schneider. <laughs> <laughs> and his first name is sounds like a shing. 
Schneider. Sorry. But it's he, he does a really great job with the setup. It's very much in the style of lore. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, it it's is. It's very, like, it's a script. It has music. It has dramatic and they're, pauses. They're, like, short bursts. And, and, right. Yeah. And it's, like, 20, it's like 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. So if you're, like, wanting to find kind of a southern slant, because he covers a lot of the stories that we've covered. I was going to say, because I got my um, Florence Maybrick story. I, I flesh out the story from mm-hmm. what they had provided. So, right. so like, yes. they gave the they gave the the bones of it mm-hmm. and then, you know, we we went in and did more research and mm-hmm. read from the stuff, but like it came from them. Right. So yeah, they're they're an awesome podcast. Right. So yeah, definitely check it out. It's definitely it's it is a storytelling, um, one person talking. Mm-hmm kind of deal very um, cool very cool so shout out to southern gothic uh so he that's the number that i got from them but i've looked at several different articles because there's articles all over the place about this lake and even like recently like very recently like august so putting the number at 675 since 1956 Boating accidents and drownings, uh, cars sliding off the road into the water for, like, no reason whatsoever. Just weird shit like that. Mm-hmm. Um, there are various stories about boats hitting something in the water, only for it to turn out that there was nothing there. Uh, boats capsizing, again, for no apparent reason. Um also, dangerous rogue waves that seem to come out of nowhere. You've talked about rogue waves. Yes. So, you know, just weird, unexplained phenomenon in this huge lake. Many of the drowning cases are odd. Um, a lot of them happened very close to shore with strong swimmers in calm conditions. Mm. Uh, people who have survived, like who almost drowned, said that they felt like they were being pulled underwater by unseen hands and, um, you know, and having the air suddenly leave their lungs and cause exhaustion and just being startled suddenly is kind of the things that people who've almost drowned in Lake Lanier have like reported saying that they felt. Um, luckily, they did not die. The first notable death, though, at Lake Lanier happened in 1958, and um, they they say that this is its most like famous victim that the lake has taken. It's her name was Susan Roberts, and she was actually traveling along with her friend Della May Parker, and um, so. Roberts was driving and she lost control of her car and crashed uh, right off of this uh, bridge, Lanier Bridge in Dawsonville on the Dawsonville Highway. So her car came to rest in 90 feet of water on like Mm. this steep slope at the base of the bridge. And it got caught in the deadfall of like where the trees were sheared off to the trunks there at the bottom. So it was just like, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit later on about like the conditions around the bridges. So a year after they, they like disappeared. And like the only thing that was left was like the skid marks uh, of where they went off the road there at the bridge. So I don't, I don't think anybody witnessed it, but they saw the skid marks and they disappeared. And so they thought maybe, you know, that's how they knew something had happened. So a year after the incident, in 1959, divers recovered the body of Della May Parker mm. Young. I'm sorry, Della May Parker. She's like four names. Della May Parker Young. 
and she had her body had no hands it was missing both of its hands uh, and some toes off of its left foot um which is really weird i mean do fish do that i don't think fish I, do that I, I don't know I, I don't know i'll have to look more into that carnivorous lake linear fish right developing a taste for human flesh. <laughs> human flesh it would make let's you add think. to this <laughs> no write a book <laughs> um so you know but Miss Roberts' body was never found. So mm. she was found. Um, they couldn't locate the car at this time. It was just, I think her body just floated up somewhere and, and they found oh it a year God. later. How horrifying must that be? <sighs> I know. So the <clears throat> visibility was like almost zero. So, you know, they couldn't find her. And uh, Robert, Susie Roberts, her remains were undiscovered until 1990. Wow. So it was like really long time afterwards when they were constructing a new linear bridge and the construction crew found Robert's car mm. while dredging up the lake bottom. And, you know, they were setting the foundation pillars for the new bridge. So they found her car and they found her in the car. Oh, so, um, and so they, they didn't know when they found the lady earlier when they found, um, Par- Della May for name Parker, Parker Young. Early, yeah, Young earlier. Uh, they didn't know who she was. I don't think they they were guessing, but I don't think they could really identify her. So she was actually buried in an unmarked grave at oh, that time. Wow. But when because yeah, like in the late fifties, right? So right, no, no yeah. DNA analysis or right. whatever, and and maybe not yeah. even dental records either mm-hmm. at that time. So um, when they found uh, Rosie. Roberts, so Susie Roberts, sorry. When they found Susie Roberts, they would like put two and two together and they were able to identify and say that these were the two girls that went missing, mm-hmm. off, you know, near Lake Lanier. Uh, so there is supposedly an apparition of a young woman in a blue dress that haunts that bridge at night that people have said that they've seen. And according to those who have seen the spirit, uh, and she's also kind of known as Lady of the Lake. She is mm. missing her hands. So that is actually Miss Young, mm. who was the first body found that they think are, is haunting the Lanier Bridge area. Oh, so weird. So also a mysterious, because we talked about like the fairies. There's There were a lot of fairy crossings mm-hmm. before the lake was formed. and um, And so there's... Purportedly, there's been people who have seen a mysterious raft floating on the lake late at night, and its inhabitant, like a shadowy figure, pushing with a long pole and a lantern light. Well, some fishermen who saw this one night, and it was a cold night, said that where the person, where the area that they saw the raft and the guy pushing with this pole was roughly 45 feet deep. So there's no way that his raft could have been moving because the pole would not have been long enough to push it across the river at that spot. And so the two fishermen who are watching this happen said that the the figure suddenly shouted and jumped from the raft into the freezing water. And then that freaked the fuck out of the fishermen because they thought that guy was swimming towards yeah, them. No shit. So they were getting the hell out of there. And so they were gathering all their stuff and then come to find out that when they were trying to find the raft, they couldn't find the raft. 
They didn't see the guy in the water, and the water was calm, like nothing had disturbed it. Mm. So, you know, but this, there's been people who have seen, like, this raft floating at night um, on the lake. So, again... The river sticks. Yes. Weird, weird shit happening. It's estimated that 10 to 20 people a year die on the lake. In 2011... Uh, accidents the accidents on the lake really got like a lot of public attention and i remember when this happened um in 19 oh, 19 let me show <laughs> in 2011 17 deaths on lake there were 17 deaths on lake lanier and many of them were freak accidents and uh in 2012 the twin the twin the trend mm-hmm. continued uh and it's just like all of this shit started happening and people were getting, um, become more and more aware of how deadly the lake is. Uh, like in 2012, a nine-year-old boy and his brother were riding a pontoon and were struck and killed by a speeding boat. Mm. Uh, like right after that, like a month after that, the, um, the little boy, uh, I don't know if he was like a son or stepson of Usher. Yeah, got killed um, when basically he was inner tubing and a jet ski hit him, mm. and that shit can happen. I mean, jet skis are fucking dangerous if mm. you are not paying attention or not aware, and you don't have somebody that's in control of it. Because I have been in the water with somebody jet skiing, and it freaked me the fuck out. Yeah, because yeah, it could just hit you in the head, and you're done. Mm-hmm. You're out, and you're in water, and it's very easy. So I can see easily where that um definitely could happen so that happened and that brought like a lot of attention to the lake um his friend who was also hit um survived but um usher's stepson i believe um did not make it so a lot of people were talking about how the lake seemed cursed and was a death trap and this was reported like in the news and social media and stuff and people were insisting that there was there's something evil and vile about the place and it's best to be avoided However, 8 million people visit there a year. Mm. That is a shit ton of people Mm -hmm. in the area. And a lot of what's reported with accidents is a good amount of alcohol involved. Yes, I'm sure. Few few people um, don't know, like, the regulations for operating boats or motorized watercraft. And, you know, it's just... We, with that many people that out there, something is going to happen. out there, and they can't enforce. They mm-hmm. can't enforce this stuff. So, um, plus, it's like, it's making them money. I mm-hmm. think they make, like... I read this, and I didn't write it down, but, you know, upwards of, like, $5 million a year in, mm-hmm. like, you know, revenue just off of recreational stuff, and mm-hmm. if not more. And I think it's, it's more than that. So, in addition to these freak accidents and drownings that are happening, um, Lake Lanier has been a location for more bizarre, mysterious deaths and disappearances. So, here's one case that has... Um, it's been resolved, but it's still kind of weird. Uh, and it's around this Georgia man named Kelly Nash. He was 25. So he went missing from his home in Buford, uh, Georgia, in 2015. And what had happened early that morning, like at 4 a.m., he woke up with flu-like symptoms. 
he was coughing and sneezing and he told his girlfriend at the time that he felt terrible and she'd probably see a doctor before going back to bed. So she went back to sleep and she woke up again like at 7.30 and Nash was gone and he had not taken his wallet. He had not taken his keys or ID with him. Um, and he didn't show back up like that. She waited like till that evening and he didn't show back up. So she called the police and they discovered that his nine millimeter pistol was missing from the house as well, mm. but nothing else was taken. So they did this massive search and, um, you know, all his friends and family and dogs, um, you know, went looking for him. There was a $50,000 reward for him and no trace of him or his whereabouts was found. And it was one month after this strange disappearance that his body um, actually was found. His decomposed body was found in Lake Lanier by fishermen. Mm. He was still wearing the PJ pants and his dark shirt that he had on when he went missing. And although the body appeared to have no major trauma, it was found that he suffered from a single gunshot wound to his head. Mm. So it's just really weird. And it's, you know, it's never truly been solved and it's uncleared why he chose to go out in the middle of the night. Um, it's just, and it sounds like suicide. I was going to say, did they just assume that it was a suicide? Because of, you know, the gun was missing and there was one, but they couldn't find any foul play. So it, it still mm. kind of remains a mystery as to what happened. Um, another case in 2012 um, is around 16 year old uh, Gainesville high school student by the name of Hannah Truelove. And she went missing from an apartment complex near Lake Lanier where she lived with her mother. Um, the day previous, um, Oh, the following day. So she went missing, and then the next day, Hannah's body was found in a wooded area by the lakeside by another residence of that same apartment complex. She had been stabbed multiple times, oh. yet it's unclear if the wounds were life-threatening and um, the actual cause of death remained, like, elusive, and, although the authorities were, were able to rule out drowning. So to make this case even creepier... She sent out like a series of tweets on Twitter and um, like right before her death. And she expressed like a general discontent with her life at the apartment complex and a fear of having a stalker. Oh, so with one like tweet, she said, I am so scared right now. Uh, although Hannah's father would later claim that his daughter made no mention of being under any duress and didn't seem any different or more upset than usual. Um, leading to, you know, leading up into her disappearance and her death. So authorities were really never able to glean any insight or information from the tweets. And indeed, uh, no leads would ever come up and no suspects were ever apprehended in the case. And despite a major investigation and exhaustive interviews with neighbors and nearby residents, none of whom had seen or heard anything suspicious on the day in question, as well as continuous pleas for information pertaining to the case. So her death still remains a mystery. Nobody truly never knows. Mm. And as far as the dad, it's like, you know, kids are good at hiding stuff from yeah. parents. They they know what you want to hear and they know how to say it convincingly enough so that you'll leave them alone, which is sad. Mm. 
All right. So let's talk about catfish for a little bit here. <laughs> just going to change the subject. So just like with Lake Norman and... Um, Normie. Yeah. And the uh, Cowan's Ford Dam in North Carolina... You know, one of the things people think or some of the uh, skeptics think that the normie monster, lake monster, is basically a huge catfish. Mm -hmm. Like what they're seeing is a huge catfish, which makes sense because when you ever you have like that deep of water, especially warm water in the Mm -hmm. case of Lake Norman, near a huge dam, that there's going to be like really fucking big catfish. So one of the most popular local tales... um, of these giant catfish at Lake Lanier comes from a truck carrying live chickens. Oh, God. So supposedly it went hurling off the Thompson Bridge in the 1980s, sank to the bottom. And when divers were sent in to, like, you know, look at the wreckage and to recover stuff, to their horror, they found catfish the size of 12-year-old boys <laughs> gathered about the sunken trunk and engaged in ravenous feeding frenzy, oh. swallowing the chickens whole. Oh, my God. So other stories have described fishermen hooking enormous fish and having their boats towed around a lake, which that's fucking true. Because <laughs> catfish are some strong motherfuckers. <laughs> and if you've ever tried to, like, reel in a catfish, it is so fucking fun because they will put up a fight. Love catfish. <laughs> but, yeah, they will pull your boat for sure. So that's n- not big. Big deal there. That's true for a lot of... Even little bitty catfish. They're strong. (laughs) So, you know, this just kind of adds to the legend of the lake. And obviously, again, makes you fucking think about putting your toesies Mm -hmm. in the lake. And something that you can't... Because I was... Noodling is a thing. Noodling is... It is a thing. But I go for your digits, right? They do. It totally the crazy motherfuckers do that. <laughs> Not this person here. <laughs> I'm like putting socks on my feet in the water so they don't touch my toes. So, you know, that goes into part of the legends and of course makes people not want to go in the water oh and i was gonna say i was reading in some of the the comments um under some of these articles and one of them about the chicken thing says (laughs) yeah i was out on lake lanier fishing and a bunch of ducks landed on top of the water he's like and all of a sudden one of the ducks just fucking disappeared and (laughs) never came back up (laughs) (laughs) so Talking about, you know, in 2016, like I said, uh, Lake Lanier saw 17 deaths, including nine drownings and eight boating-related fatalities. Though, statistically, there's a bunch of lakes, you know, in Georgia, and it says since 1994, there's been like 160 people die. Mm. And basically, you know, they're like, well, you know, it's understandable because of the amount of people on the lake and, um, you know, shit happens kind of things. But like they broke down the statistics and they are they're like there's a 50 there's something about Lake Lanier. There's like a 50 percent higher chance that something's going to happen to you there than at the other lake. So they did oh, all wow. the, the statistics and they're like, yeah, like that is true. But if you gauge it based on these other lakes and statistics of deaths on these lakes, then there's something extra going on there at Lake Lanier. So mm. it's not just, you know, the number of people. 
although it is, but you know, again, extra woo woo going on. Extra woo woo. Extra woo woo. <clears throat> this year, there was actually in July 15th an article saying officials worry about high number of deaths on Lake Lanier so far this year. So as of July 15th, there was like already 11 deaths that had happened. And, um, I read an article that was published like in August, right before Labor Day, because they were talking about like maybe it going higher. And I want to say that in total, there may have been 16 deaths this year Mm. on the lake. But they said a lot of the deaths, again, could be avoided if people wore life jackets. Yeah. And were educated about the water. And didn't drink and drive their boats. And didn't drink and drive their boats. So the last article about Lake Lanier that I really want to talk, or the theme I want to talk about with Lake Lanier, is the actual people who do the recovering. Mm. So one of the guys said that diving in Lake Lanier is probably one of the most dangerous things I've ever done. And the reason it makes it so dangerous is because of how the lakes were formed. Mm-hmm. Because there's so much structure underneath and dead, like there used to be live forest mm-hmm. under there. So much that hasn't had a chance truly to rot and, and, and to go away. So, you know, people will get trapped in these things. They say the bridges are like terror or like trash bins. Like if, if you're traveling down the road, people throw shit out. Mm. He said, like, they have concrete rebar, all the fishing line that gets tangled in that rebar, anchor lines. And he's like, people throw off refrigerators, safes, shopping carts. So if you, like, go off the road or if you're diving off a bridge, it's very easy to get tangled in that shit Mm -hmm. and not be able to get out of it. He's also, um, this is Sergeant Temple with the Hall county dive team that goes out and and there's been hundreds of rescues they get called to hundreds of rescues on this lake and he was like one of the most harrowing experiences he's had he was down there and he fucking fell into a well (gasps) underneath like Mm. somebody's well underneath he's like all of a sudden i stepped off and there's just bricks flying past me and he couldn't figure out what the fuck was going on he's like he knew he needed to stop or he would not be able to get out of there and so like he braced himself and and was able to stop and get out of there he also says that you're looking at three or four different atmospheres so i assume that means something in diving terms as far as like top layer middle Mm. layer whatever so you can easily like get the I guess, what's it called? The like bends. The bends. Oh, yeah, um, because if you, it's 211 feet deep, you said, or if, something right, like that. Right, if you ascend part. too rapidly. So, you know, you have that problem. And he's also, he says, a lot of his divers have you know, uh, had to treat, like, some really difficult to get rid of uh, staph infections mm-hmm. from all the shit down Ew. there. So, like, all of this adds up to the lure and the danger of um lake lanier and one thing that i found interesting um you know we talked about like there's forest down there Mm -hmm. and when they were filling up the lake they stopped it at one point and um some crews went out with chainsaws and instead of like instead of they clearing the trees all it you know before they flooded it they just filled it in with water filled it up about halfway and then went and just chopped all the trees off at a certain point so these like huge forest of stumps that are still there 
are living under that um, lake, not too far below the surface. And if you have a drought, like they saw, I think it was like 2009, there was a really big drought that affected. And there's a whole bunch of political bullshit going on, mm. if you want to care to read into that. Um, like water supplies. Water supplies. Yes, mm-hmm. that, that happened. Um, some gauges that were like that broke and so things were misread and they thought that they were lower than they really were i mean just like some really it goes in deep but when the drought happened you know a lot of these buildings there was like a racetrack down there so all of these things started to like appear and if you have lower water levels and those trees are still there you're going to running to like if you're trying you don't ski on that shit oh yeah you can totally you know like shit even shit on the water like things floating on the water not literal shit Mm -hmm. but like logs right um right uh i've had a friend that was water skiing and hit like a there's like a small branch or something and it literally put a hole through his stomach <gasps> and what? went out the back oh yeah my God. so like shit like that scares i mean it just scares me to death Ugh. um it just makes me like freak out every time that i'm on the river or i'm trying to water ski or anything like that but uh yeah, so all, all of that stuff plus like all the things that are still there that you get trapped under um so while it looks, there's pictures of it, it looks fantastic. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful and it's great if you can stay above the surface. Mm-hmm. But under the surface, there's all kinds of dangers that people are just not aware of. And it is the deadliest lake in Georgia. Uh, we'll be right back. Uh, uh. The Goat House Beer Garden in Montgomery is our favorite place to go when we're in Alabama's capital, whether it's to do a show, to visit a dilapidated movie set, or to flip off the governor's mansion. (laughs) So I was talking to James, and he was telling me that the Goat House highlights local artists, singer-songwriters, makers, chefs, brewers, and entrepreneurs of all types, just like the Strange South, Mm -hmm. big supporter. They intentionally support only original content because they believe that communities begin, grow, and sustain when creatives and entrepreneurs thrive. It's a great atmosphere, great company, and a lot of fun. And it's less than 10 minutes from Hank Williams' grave, which is haunted. So next time you go to say hi to old Hank, stop by the Goat House Beer Garden. So we are re-upped on cocktails, extra sugar rim. Mm-hmm. A little bit of chocolate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Reese's mm-hmm. little Santa hat, Hershey's kisses. Tra-la-la. It's like October begins the season where you steal all your children's candy. <laughs> and it just kind of continues until the end of the year. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, they get older and they steal all your candy out of your liquor cabinet. <laughs> um, so let's see. One of the big things that you do on Thanksgiving is go to movies, right? Mm-hmm. Did you go to movies? You didn't go no, to movies this year. Because that's crazy talk. It's not that busy around here, oddly. Oh, Musk? Musk? I didn't know that. I figured right. it would be like just everybody going to the movies because what else are they going to do? What's funny is like... I guess hunting. Yeah, I don't know what people were doing, but apparently the movies weren't nearly as crowded as you might think they were. Oh, well, that's good. Even though Frozen 2 opened. Yeah, I was going to say, really... Like the weekend before. What What's out there? There's nothing really out there. Mm. Well... Here's what I think most people went to with their families. Mm-hmm. 
to avoid talking <laughs> politics and shitty stuff and eating more uh, turkey, yeah. I probably went to see the Mr. Rogers movie. Oh, okay. With Tom Hanks. I know many, many, many people who went to see the Mr. Rogers movie with their parents this weekend. Okay. I guess that is a thing. And so I was thinking like, okay, so feel good stuff. Right. I don't Mr. Know. Rogers is nothing if not feel good stuff. It is totally feel good. Although, I just one of the movies I'm like... I, to me, the point of going to the movies is for the total surround sound immersion experience. <laughs> and Mr. Rogers is not one of those movies. No, I would feel it's like. not. So it's kind of wasted. So mm. I always wait to rent those kind of ones so I can snuggle up in a blanket on my couch, which to me is more of a Mr. Rogers experience. That does feel like more of a Mr. Rogers experience. I would pay to see the guy who walked in and like changed sweaters and shoes when he sat down in his chair. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> yeah, I do know a lot of people who went to it. So I started thinking, okay, so feel good stuff, feel good stuff for Thanksgiving. And I've also been listening a lot to and had a lot of conversations about um, this podcast that I've been listening to, the Dolly Parton's America. I started listening to that. Is it not amazing? Oh my God. It's so good. I cooked and listened to Dolly Parton's America. I'm sure that made your Thanksgiving it better. It really did. That and the vodka. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's the only way to cook now. Oh, amazing. <laughs> but yeah, I, I was like, and I've been obsessed with that. My my husband told me to listen to it, and so I started it and just couldn't stop. And now I can't wait for the next one to come out. And it's just really, it's really good. And there's again, it's like I there's nothing her. much more feel good than Dolly Parton. Man, I love I love everything about her. I do too. She is just there's only one. There is only mm -hmm. one. And one of the cool things about the, I mean, this is a plug for the podcast, but. One of the cool things about the podcast is they really do focus on, like, what makes her really unique as a person, like, starting with the, how does somebody get such a diverse audience base? Right. Like, that you have all different types, ages, like, ethnicities, like, political, you know. Leanings. Leanings. Right. All in one room and everybody's really happy. Mm-hmm. And they're not going to be dicks to each other at a Dolly Parton concert. Right. She and it's like, how does she do that? Yes. And that's kind of like the big, it's one of the big questions of the podcast. Right. Is like, how does she bring people? So again, you know, that's Thanksgiving, right? Is like trying not to have fights with people. We <laughs> had a very turkey. successful Thanksgiving. We did too that I, way. I was just, I was just waiting for the shoe to drop, but it never dropped. And it was lovely. And that's awesome. We survived. I only made a couple of crass Donald Trump comments and my dad just looked the other way. I don't think he, I don't know that he's really in the, he's not in the anti-fight anymore either though. I don't know that he's really like, he, he was never a Trumper, so to speak. Right. But he is, he is, you know, a lifelong conservative. But, um, so anyways, let's not go down that way. <laughs> That's not where I'm headed today. Dolly Parton. Dolly Parton brings people together. Yes. But so anyway, this is, I'm telling you, this is, <laughs> this is an extremely long description of my train of thought to get to where I get today. <laughs> okay. I'm all, I'm all aboard. So I think about Dolly Parton and I think about like the Imagination Library, which if you're not familiar, do you know about Dolly Parton's Imagination Library? I do not. Okay. See, I didn't know about this until I moved down here and started having kids because I would get like a flyer every once in a while in the mail. But Dolly Parton, um, the Imagination Library mails free books 
to kids from when they're born until they hit high school. Oh, wow. It doesn't matter. You don't have to fill out an income form. You don't have to be quote unquote in need or anything like that. You just sign up. Um, it started in 1995. It's like a book a month, I think is what it is. Okay. And, um, she just started it in Sevier County in Tennessee where she grew up. Mm -hmm. And then like by 2000, it brushed like the entire country it covered. And now it's international. Oh, wow. Um, it's a, in 2003, so it, it, it started in 95. So in less than 10 years, it had mailed a million books. Wow. And, you know, I was just thinking like about how, again, you know, Dolly Parton brings people to get, it brings a tear to your oh, eye, no. right? Dolly Parton doing all this awesome stuff. But, you know, books too, specifically, you know, right. when you look at studies of people, you know, what books, what reading can do for people. Right. And so all of this is already kind of like moshing around in my brain because of like Thanksgiving and Mr. Rogers and this podcast that I'm listening to. And then a friend of mine posts, and I think it was Todd Misha, I can't remember. A friend of mine posts this just this random little history link about um, the Kentucky pack horse librarians from the 1930s. Oh, okay. And I was like, okay, well, this is like, that's obviously what I'm going to cover now. Right. Um, something I'd never heard of. Okay, same. So here's, here's where this started. Um, Kentucky in the 1930s, like many other southern states in the 1930s, a pretty poor state. Right. Um, so when in the 1930s the Depression hits... Yeah, I was going to ask, like, wasn't the Depression around that time yeah. again? Yeah, and that was really, that's really kind of the focal point of all of this, like this bit right the depression hits this area extra hard right. because number one we've already got a larger impoverished population but a lot of the employment was in coal mines and a whole bunch of those coal mines closed mm -hmm. um so employment was 40 percent in wow. kentucky during the depression um so many of the areas like in the appalachian mountain range in eastern kentucky they were in that place where like there were no roads, there was no power line, right. there was no plum. I mean, there was nothing there. Mm -hmm. And, um, so, you know, and that was pre depression. That was when people were employed. Right. So it exacerbated issues that were already there. So infant mortality goes <sighs> up, starvation, mm. uh, child starvation goes up mm. illness. And like, I'm thinking, Oh yeah, I'm doing feel good stories really well right now. This is, this <laughs> is the most feel good story I've ever done. Mm. <laughs> So it was just, yeah, it was a horrible time. I remember my grandmother rough. talking about depression and about, like, why she cleaned her plate. Like, you know, why they eat everything off their plate now and, and why they do this and all these little quirks that she developed because of the depression. And that the adults ate first. Yeah. And then it was the children ate the leftovers, basically. That's interesting because mm -hmm. I've heard people do that the other way around, too. Right. But, I mean, I guess if the adults are the ones who have to have energy to work and bring food to the kids. Right. Like it's like, put on your own, put on your own mask first, mm -hmm. like in the well, airplane. As, well now say adults, the men ate, mm. ate first yeah, well. and then the women and children. So that's interesting. Cause this kind of touches on some of that too. So, um, I, it's weird. Cause I don't think that much about the new deal. I never did think that much about like FDR's new deal, public works programs, in the South until I started hiking and like thinking about all of the, the walls and things that were built by, um, 
uh, Corps of Engineers, I guess it was. Right. And that's, I guess, yeah, go ahead. And um, so the New Deal created the Works Progress Administration, the WPA. And the whole point of it was putting people to work through federally funded public works projects. So WPA jobs were primarily male jobs. Right. And when I say male jobs, I just mean like they were in those industries that the labor was going to be higher, you know, they considered it building, yeah. they right. considered it manual labor and they considered it uncouth sort of for women to do it regardless. Right. Um, at that time. So they were building railroads, they were doing construction of schools, you mm-hmm. know, and, um, and roads. So during this time, it's great that the WPA creates all these jobs it also leaves a whole bunch of women as single head of household um, because they're traveling to get to whatever job they can get to. These guys are just taking off and right. working how they can and mailing money. Right. And um, the women are, these jobs aren't there for them. Right. And females working outside the house is also not a huge thing right, right. now. It's unheard of. You um, don't do that. You stay home, take care of the kids. Exactly. But when, everybody is starving. Mm -hmm. You've got to do something, right? Right. Um, so the, um, the WPA recognized that there was kind of a dearth of opportunities for women in its programs. And they started some seamstress programs. Um, there were a lot of sewing related things that women could start to do, but they also looked and they were like, okay, so, um, in Kentucky, the illiteracy rate was more than 30%. Wow. And uh, libraries were circulating one book per capita in Kentucky versus, like, I guess the American Library Association or whatever was, like, a recommended five to ten books per person should be circulated, and Kentucky was at one. So, like, whatever libraries they had, not particularly well used. And if you can look at the... Look at number one, the education system, but also look at the terrain, right? And recognize why this is happening. You know, right. it's not because people don't have an interest in learning; the, it's because these resources are not to. here for them. Right? Yeah, they they don't have roads. You know, what I mean, right? like, what do you want? So, um, so they, um, it's interesting. Eleanor Roosevelt started kind of pushing this women focused like areas of the WPA. She's looking for other projects that women can do instead of just manual labor men's, you know, things that women will accept as something that's appropriate for them to do. Right. At the time. So she decides we're going to bring like books and reading material into this 10,000 square mile part of Eastern Kentucky that is mountainous and impossible to get to. Mm -hmm. And um, there's like, Bookmobiles and stuff like that, like mobile libraries, have actually existed since the 1800s, which oh, I had wow. no idea. Of. I didn't either. That's cool. I know, right? But these, you can't get there. I mean, you're talking wagons. They, yeah, right. Okay. You can't. There are no roads. I don't know how many times I'm going to say that to myself. Right. Um. So, uh, in let's see, was it 19th? I didn't write down what year this started, but anyways. Through the WPA, they started a program called the Pack Saddle or Pack Horse Librarian Program. Um, it was founded by a woman named Elizabeth Fullerton, and there had actually been a program in 1913 with roots in the Kentucky Federation of Women's Clubs. Um, but Eleanor Roosevelt championed this new WP initiative, and um, 
if you want to hear more about it than I'm going to say, or, or different than I'm going to say, there's mm-hmm. a podcast I don't know if you've ever heard of called The Kitchen Sisters Present. Okay. Um, and they do uh, kind of short burst historical, like I think they call it like B-side history, like oh, B-side cool. history. And um, they- I love that. Yeah. It's, it's a very cool podcast. And they do a lot of interview sound bites with the people who were involved in the program. So they pull from- original source and um there are some really cool voices and you know interviews that are involved in this but it's really funny because you've got to you've got to at least listen to their episode on the pack horse librarians to hear eleanor roosevelt talk oh wow. because that fucking woman sounds like goddamn mickey mouse (laughs) i mean it's just like it's unbelievable like i started and you were like expecting this like because i've heard things about eleanor roosevelt and i'm thinking kind of like a proper dark dark deep rich proper voice and it is like oh no it's really fucking funny so you you should listen to that but um so anyways roosevelt looks at this as a way to increase literacy and employment at the same time and they hired almost all women so um what the job was was they would have saddle packs on a like a some sort of pack like a horse or a mule they would fill them with books. They would ride out to these remote Appalachian towns and homes in eastern Kentucky, and they would distribute the books and come pick them back later. WPA paid the salaries, but that's all they paid. Oh, wow. So the women used their own horses and mules, or they would lease them from neighbors for, like, whatever they could, whatever price they could get. People, right. you know, this is part of where it gets to feel good, because people were kind of doing for each other. Right. And I think the only thing that our generation may be able to really look in common with this is like that feeling after 9-11 when all of a sudden, you know, it's like you get that everybody's human, everybody's struggling, everything sucks, let's just do for each other. Right. And that's kind of what's cool about this is, you know, so if they didn't have their own and they wanted to work in this program, somebody would lend them or somebody would lease them something. Right. Um, so they rode through the like the creeks and up the mountains at least twice a month. Um, they would deliver and pick up all this reading material through Eastern Kentucky. The, the routes were a hundred to 120 miles a week. And it was like, you know, that like the post office is like through rain or not rain nor sleet, nor, you know, they would go in whatever weather it happened to be that nothing would. And there's some shitty weather up in the mountains. No fucking shit. (laughs) And I was going to say some of the things that they, I'm going to tell you some of the things that they said about what they rode through. Oh, wow. Um, they would get $28 a month for this, which is roughly like $515 a month in today's currency. Or that was, I think that blog, it's a blog called Wednesday's Woman. Today's currency was probably like a couple of years ago, but it's probably not too far off. Right. So it's not a lot, mm-hmm. even, you know, right adjusted for inflation and whatever. So, and it was super hard. So like I said, no roads, no, you know, very, very remote areas. It was almost impossible to see the trails in a lot of places. Right. You had to be pretty hardy to you do this. You really did. And you've got to have a hardy damn horse. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, and the, the trails that, and I, the cool thing is now, if you're not on the fan group now, get on it this week because I'm gonna be posting these pictures that I found and for once, like most of the time we look at these and it's really hard to find pictures of the older stories that we do. But this right. one is 
just there are so many oh, and wow. they're super fucking cool oh wow because it's these women going up these these inclines on these horses and the incline is just covered in just shale and rock and you can just oh, see it shit. just cascading away underneath the horse's hooves but they're gonna fucking go wow it's really cool are they wearing sensible shoes <laughs> <laughs> there are okay, they're good. wearing super sensible shoes good they are dressed like they should probably be dressed instead of like okay expect good. people to be right. dressed. you know what i mean like yeah i could just see like the boots with the little heels on them no like, not okay. so much though there, there were some of them that looked a little bit more uh a trend conscious than others maybe but uh the the smithsonian did an article on it that i read and they um talked to a woman named nan milan or mylan who carried books um on an eight mile radius from this one school it was a boarding school for mountain kids because like I said, you know, when there's no way to get from here to there, these mountain kids had to go to boarding schools. They couldn't, there wasn't just like a one room schoolhouse right. to go with just your community with like 20 kids in it because there was not, they couldn't get there. So they had to go to boarding school. They had to stay someplace else if they were going to be schooled because there was no other way to do it. And um, so she, this woman joked that the horses she rode had shorter legs on one side than the other so that they wouldn't slide off the mountain paths. <laughs> oh, um, and like you said, weather was absolutely shitty. Um, there's a, a, I think this was in a news magazine called blueridgecountry.com that talked about a woman named Mary Luttrell who talked about the rainy roads that she went on and she would be knee deep in mud. And she mm. said, I've had to hold my feet out to the sides of the horse. The mud was so deep on the roads and the horse would have to swim the Creek when it rained, but mm. she took me everywhere I wanted to go. She said, they said, because it also gets super, super cold mm -hmm. um, up in the mountains and their feet would freeze to the stirrups because they're having to go through oh water God. and their feet would freeze. And they did this every week, a hundred to 120 miles a week. Um, Sometimes when the horses couldn't even make it, they would just dismount and walk up on foot. So there, like I said, there's tons of really cool photos. Um, but, you know, I was like, I had written down, like, you've got to understand how hard this is. And I was like, it's also really hard to raise kids without any money. Right. So it's like they, I think a lot of them were choosing this because it gave them it, it gives them an income stream for one thing, but it also gives them like a purpose. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, I know you people, it's, that actually sounded wrong. You have a purpose when you're raising your children. It's not like, right. I'm not trying to like trivialize that. But some people need more than that. Yes. Some I mean, people, it's, yes. it's a different feeling. Right. And I think, you know, I think these were the women who were going to be like, really going to need that right. to, to be able to go through this and be glad that they're doing this job. Definitely going to need that. Mm -hmm. So, um, since the WPA only paid the salaries, um, they could only do this program if you had a base library from the county to grow on. And because of this, like they would do quote unquote libraries, people would be like, we're a library now. <laughs> and, you know, so any facility that would step up would become a library. So schoolhouses, post office, churches, they would all be like, okay, we will be your central location. You can go from here. We're a library now. Oh, wow. Cool. And um, they couldn't pay for books. Mm -hmm. So they relied on donations and word kind of spread across the country. I don't know if it was in newspapers or radio or whatever, but um, they ended up getting book donations from half the states in the country for this oh, Eastern cool. Kentucky program. So there was like a, a Smithsonian talked about a woman who had been born in Kentucky and moved to California and sent 500 books as a memorial to her mother oh, wow. to these programs. And they would take anything. So they would have 
cookbooks and Sunday school materials and quilt patterns and textbooks and just any old newspapers, magazines. And if they were too worn out to circulate, like they had the, you know, they had trained people to put them back together. Oh, yeah. And so if they couldn't rebind them or put them back together, they would take the pieces out and cut them into binders and just paste them on normal pieces of paper and put them into binders so that they could continue to circulate the books. Oh, wow. Cool. And they would use old Christmas cards as bookmarks and they would distribute old Christmas cards so that people wouldn't dog ear the pages. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was like, that's really smart. I have I know, so right? many old Christmas cards I need to start using as bookmarks. Right I know. Now. Or, you know what I what can tell you? What a great idea. I, I, that's actually, it's really good to, to find a use for something you already have. Mm-hmm. And I, I started, a friend of mine started making bookmarks out of, um, but you know, those paint chips that you get in strips from home Depot. Like if you've ever done a home project and right. you cl- collected a lot of, you know, they're about six inches long and about an inch wide mm-hmm. and they have three different colors on them. And if you take a Sharpie and draw fun designs on them and stuff like that, then you've got like make your own bookmarks. Those are pretty cool too. Oh, cool. But there's tons of stuff, but anyway, so they would do that and they were, you know, it's like, you're talking about like your your grandparents being in the depression. A lot of people who lived through that time know how to be really resourceful right. with everything that they have. So you don't waste stuff. You right. find something to do. Um, so anyway, it didn't matter what books they carried, how stinky these women or muddy they were when they got there. Right. Like they would get into these little like communities and people would just like run to get to them. And kids would come up to them and say, bring me a book, bring me a book. Yeah. And they were it was so like ecstatic. Santa coming to the village. Oh yeah. And they would, um, the schools that were open, they would stop at and the teachers and students would just crowd around them. There were, they would go to cabins. They would go house to house. They wouldn't just go to just a school or right. a gathering place. They would go house to house. And there were people who had not seen anybody since the last time the book was delivered. So, I mean, that's how remote some of the people were. Wow. And they would also kind of carry news and letters and stuff back and forth so that they would have some idea what else was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was a book called um, The WPA, Creating Jobs and Hope in the Great Depression, that talked about the fact that because a lot of these mountain schools didn't have libraries to begin with, a lot of these kids had never checked out a book before. Right. And so they were like doubly ecstatic about these women showing up and they've got this, they've never been able to do that. Like they're yelling at these people's feet when they get there with their horses. Um, and they didn't care what kind of book they got. Oh like yeah. The kid has read none of these books and would just devour yeah, them. I'm they're sure. destroying them. So most of the people wanted things like Robinson Crusoe or Gulliver's travels, um, picture books because there were a lot of people who were illiterate and they made it easier for them to kind of navigate their way through the book. They did a lot of poetry, which I found was interesting. Oh, wow. And magazines like Popular Mechanics and Ladies Home Journal. It said, not allowed in the book women's sacks, because they called them the book women, mm-hmm. um, were thriller magazines like Love Story and True Story Ooh. or True Detective. Bibles always available. I was like, we are not raising any little nanny dosses here. Mm-hmm. We're like, no way. Not allowed to have these little sexy stories. Um, <laughs> but, you know, they would like the demand for stuff just went through the roof once they started the program because people just couldn't get enough of it. And one woman told her carrier, like me and my old man pull up the table on either side of the bed, light the lamps and reads the books. And they, the books she brought us saved our lives. She said, um, some, some of the book women would stay to help teach people how to read or Mm -hmm. to read to older people who had bad eyesight and couldn't read anymore. Um, 
And the Louisville Courier Journal talked to a woman who was 83 at the time in 1995 when they when they published this interview. Her name was Grace Caudill Lucas, and she sounded like a she would like eat you for lunch. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, she still lived in the same area, Kentucky. She delivered to in the Depression when they interviewed her, and she had been a single mother of two when she got the job. And um, she said there were a lot of nights where they just ate bread and milk for supper. And she said, she adds on to them and she's like, that's still good enough for me. And mm-hmm. she, you know, I mean, oh, this yeah. woman would destroy you, right? Mm-hmm. But she said, um, she remembers there was one home where she went to that to deliver books that um, the woman had a big family and she didn't hardly have enough food to go around. And every time she showed up with books, that woman would demand that she stay. She wouldn't let her leave until she'd eaten dinner. Oh, wow. And, you know, Grace was like, I I'm not, I don't want to take food out of your kids' mouths, but she wouldn't take no for an answer because people were doing for each other. Right. Um, but anyway, so this program went on until 1943 when, <laughs> yay, war provides more industry for people to get jobs. Right. War was what got us out of the Depression. Um, but... Uh, so from when it started in 1935, that's when it began, to 1943, the program reached 1.5 million Kentuckians. Oh, wow. And enabled nearly 1,000 women to support themselves and their families in 48 Kentucky counties. Oh. And, and when it ended in 43, it was about 10 years from then until bookmobiles actually became a thing in Kentucky. But now there are more bookmobiles in Kentucky than any other state in the country. Wow. Um, I didn't know that. That is so interesting. I know. Yeah. And, um, there, and in 1956, there was a Kentucky congressman named Carl Perkins who sponsored the library services act, which provided the first federal appropriations for library services. And the reason why he did that was because his family had had a pack horse librarian go to his house during the depression and deliver books to him. And so he had, he voted on that to give federal support to library programs because the pack horse librarian oh wow so that is my feel-good story (sighs) for this week is amazing feel good in books read a book today read a book today i tell you what we have a fantastic library here in jacksonville we do and actually there's a fantastic library down in aniston as well that i totally they have so many you just do not realize unless you go to the library and are involved with the library you do not understand how much they do for the community yeah they do I a mean, lot absolutely um and when i was in grad school talking to like we had a specific librarian that would help us with research and whatnot and just talking to her and like the library sciences and the degrees that you, and you can specialize, like you could specialize in graphic design, being a graphic design librarian. Oh, cool. Which is like very high demand. Like you would basically travel and get paid very well to specialize in that area. I mean, so there's like these whole universe of library science degrees and specialities that you can get, in, oops, that you can <laughs> get into especially like in in bigger cities and stuff Mm -hmm. uh, and universities that would support this, that if I would have known about it, I may have gone that route because everything that she talked about, I was just eating up. Mm -hmm. I was like, that sounds so much like what I want to do, like what I love doing. And you know, the rabbit holes that you can get thrown down. It's like, I could live. I worked in a library when I was, um, and uh, working on my undergraduate degree. 
and I, I mean, we goofed off, <laughs> you know, as you do as a college student. But I, I mean, having to go to work at a library, I did not regret. I mean, I didn't feel like it was a drain on me. I didn't hate going, you know, having this extra job or whatnot, you know, because it was work study kind of, you know, and you get kind of bored sometimes with work study mm. and whatnot. But I dug it so much because I was in a fucking library and there was like no, I could just, I just loved it. It was like <laughs> one of the best experiences ever. And um, I'm such a, even though I don't read, it's you know, like you just don't fucking have time, and I, I know, really hate hard. that. So mm-hmm. I figured, like, when I get like old and I can't do anything else, that's because that's what my grandmother did. She read, mm-hmm. gosh, she read so much. My family was such big readers before the internet. I mean, that's all we did. Fucking internet. Fucking internet. Um, but yeah, I totally love it, and that's I love the book, ladies. It's really funny that like I I remember after I graduated college and I started looking at jobs and I was like, I want to be a librarian. I make shit. And I didn't like, and I was an English major and right? I didn't actually have the skills to be a librarian. You know? <laughs> Fuck. I was like, I thought that'd be easier. Right? No, you would it think. Is not. It is not. No, I, it's funny because I think everybody could probably point to like maybe one mean librarian that they've met, like the shh librarian. Right? Mm-hmm. But I think... In my personal experience, that person is way outnumbered by those sort of amazing, like, yes, uber well, helpful, personable, lovely, friendly, n- passionate people. Knowledgeable, passionate, just oddballs. Oh, yeah. They're oddballs. And I love it because I'm an oddball, too. So it's like, oh, you I know, know, it's like, it's like, it's our, like people. our people. Exactly. But, you know, when you have that mean librarian... And, and I was talking to somebody else about this. It's like, you cannot let that discourage, like, in any field. It's like, you're going to have that one teacher, that one professor. You're going to have that one boss, that one coworker, wherever the fuck you are, that is just going to be the asshole of the group. Mm-hmm. And it's not the profession. Mm-hmm. It is the people. And it's just, like, statistically impossible to get away from the assholes of the world. Mm-hmm. So you cannot blame it on the teachers or, you know, whatever. Yeah, look, librarians. For, the, look for the good ones. <laughs> look for let's the go good back ones. to let's go back to Mr. Rogers. Sorry. Look for the helpers. Look for the helpers. Look for the helpers. All right. Because I'd like my kids have been going to libraries since they were teeny. Yes. And they still love going to libraries. And one of the reasons that they do is because every librarian that they've had at our local library for children's librarians has been lovely. Right. And the one that they have now, who they know by name and they know her grandchildren and she knows them when they walk in the door and she knows what books they like and she will order them for them if they don't have them in stock. She sees them on the street and says, oh my gosh, there's a new Mary Downing Hahn book that you haven't read yet. I I need to make sure you come in and get it. I mean, holy shit, who does right? that? Who does that? She's amazing. That's, yes, that sounds amazing. Well, your children are also like exceptional readers and, <laughs> and young women. So I do not doubt oh, that wow. any librarian would be ecstatic to like help them. Yeah, she is. She is super good, though. I mean, she's and she. it's not just them. It's she is that way with all the kids that come in. I really do think she's just remarkable person. So. All right. Yay, librarians! Yay, librarians! Stay away from lakes. Yeah, <laughs> go to your local library. <laughs> there you go. Public service announcement episode. <laughs> Thank y'all for listening. Bye. <laughs> Don't litter. Don't litter. I'll talk to you soon. <laughs> Bye.
Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and check out our website, thestrangesouth.com. All our social media links are there. And for extra fun and goodies, join our Facebook fan group, Fans of the Strange South Podcast. And if you love us so much that you want to support what we do and get bonus episodes and behind-the-scenes photos and videos, please consider joining our Patreon, Patreon, Patreon at www.patreon.com slash thestrangesouth. Out of the valleys of Habersham, down the valleys of Hall, I hurry amain to reach the plain, run the rapid and leap the fall, split at the rock and together again, accept my bed, or narrow or wide, and flee from folly on every side with a lover's plain to attain the plain, far from the hills of Habersham, far from the valleys of Hall. All down the hills of Habersham, all through the valleys of Hall, the rushes cried, Abide, abide! The wilful waterweeds held me thrall, the laving laurel turned my tide, the ferns and the fondling grass said, Stay! The dewberry dipped for to work delay, and the little reeds sighed, Abide, abide! Here in the hills of Habersham, here in the valleys of Hall. High o'er the hills of Habersham, veiling the valleys of Hall, the hickory told me manifold fair tales of shade, the poplar tall wrought me her shadowy self to hold, the chestnut, the oak, the walnut, the pine, overleaning with flickering meaning and sign, said, Past not so cold, these manifold deep shades of the hills of Habersham, these glades in the valleys of Hall. And oft in the hills of Habersham, and oft in the valleys of Hall, the white quartz shone, and the smooth brook-stone did bar me of passage with friendly brawl, and many a luminous jewel lone, crystals clear, or a cloud with mist, ruby, garnet, or amethyst, made lures with the lights of streaming stone, in the clefts of the hills of Habersham, in the beds of the valleys of Hall. But, oh, not the hills of Habersham, and, oh, not the valleys of Hall avail. I am fain for to water the plain. Downward the voices of duty call, downward to toil and be mixed with the main. The dry fields burn, and the mills are to turn, and a myriad flowers mortally yearn. And the lordly main from beyond the plain calls all the hills of Habersham, calls through the valleys of Hall.' 